Psalm 32 is going to be our passage this evening. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm of David, a misgal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in the time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters, they will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Do not be as the horse or as a mule, which have no understanding, whose trapping include a bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround them. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for another time, another week where we come before you to study and know more about you through your word. Be with us this evening. May we learn your word, not just as an intellectual exercise, but allow it to pierce our hearts and shape us to be more like your son. Thank you for this time that we have in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Have you ever seen those commercials? Um, I don't know if people still watch TV anymore, but I remember as a kid, there used to be these type of commercials that they're almost used as a way to warn people. It's like a scare tactic. Uh, these commercials in particular are intended to inform and, and caution people about certain activities that will cause irreversible damage if they choose to live a certain lifestyle. For example, I remember one as a kid, there was this anti-cigarette commercial and they showed this old lady how she looked like when she was young and then she started smoking at a young age and then they see her, you see her at the present time and there's like a hole in her throat and then she's like, you know, smoking through her throat. And I remember as a kid, that was horrifying because I didn't know what I was seeing. Like, why is this, this why is this lady breathing out this little hole out of her neck? And the idea is supposed to make you reconsider um, whether or not you wanna take up cigarettes. And these type of commercials, they have their, they're usually based on reality and it's supposed to be used as a way to get people to not smoke or to stop a certain lifestyle. And again, these commercials are intended to show the viewers what happens if they do not heed their warning. And, um, and then, you know, usually these commercials, there's like a sense of regret at the end. Like, oh, if I wish, if I was younger, if I saw this commercial, then I would not have got to the point where there's a little hole in my throat. You know, it's this idea that you, 
you want to learn from a mistake so that uh, so you try to teach other people in hopes that they do not fall into the same mistake that you've made and that's what psalm 32 is this, this is a warning kind of message this is a warning kind of psalm it's supposed to show what happens when a person decides to hold on to their sin as opposed to confessing it to the lord this psalm is is about is from david and this is the same david as we're familiar with david's has a royal failure. He's a part of a royal family, but he has this, this catastrophic failure in his own life. Yet he, for a while, chose not to repent. And yet David understood that that whole time, you know, in Scripture, when we look at the when we look at Second Samuel, it seems like it only happens, you know, the sin of Bathsheba. It seems like it only happens within like seconds, right? But uh, from you know, Bathsheba to Nathan, it was actually, but it's actually a long time. There was a lot of time in between that's not recorded and the psalms kind of fill in that gap it shows you it shows all of us what happens during that whole several months of unrepentant sin and, and we know from from scripture that your sin will find you out this is from numbers 32 verse 23 and oftentimes the more you hide your sin the more misery that is going to come for you David here speaks of the pains of holding on to sin and, the, and at the same time, the joys of repenting and turning back to the Lord. How blessed is it to be able to have a restored relationship with God? David here wants to use his failings to teach us and teach everyone that's reading this psalm about the realities of sin. Real heart change can only come when you repent, but there's a blessedness of forgiveness and that's a primary reason why we should repent and why David repented. He wanted to be close with the Lord again. Notice in the beginning, before verse one, there's this little phrase like a Psalm of David, a mascal, and um, David wrote the Psalm. And then again, this is the same David as uh, King David. And although he was a mighty man, uh, because he was a man after God's own heart, and have done mighty things for the Lord, but he has also failed mightily when it comes to sin. And David is the best illustration of scripture of someone that has great faith, but has also failed greatly. He's a picture of a person that shows the reality of a fallen individual as in the faith. Um, in Maskell, it's, 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 it's different commentators depending on what the meaning is, but uh, I like the idea, the explanation of this is like a memory passage. This is a passage for people to sing so they can remember um, what what is sung or about the about you know the, the lesson here, the core lesson. And David here, if the, if, this, if the interpretation is accurate, then it's fitting because this psalm is supposed to teach you about confessing to the Lord. And he wants the listener to sing this. In, his, in their own hearts and in their own minds, or even out loud, so they can remember to confess their sins to God. This is something that David wants the listeners to remember, and that hopefully in time that they will sing to the Lord, that, they will that the song will cause them to repent. He wants to sing to teach a lesson about the blessedness of forgiveness. This is more than just a hymn for worship, but it's a hymn that also instructs the listener. Look at verse one, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. This word blessed can be translated as happy because the meaning of the word means to be in a state of happiness. This is a common word in the Psalms. It is a very meaningful word. Um, one of my professors described this word as being in the enviable place of divine approval. 
and which basically it just means to be in favor and be in a good place. Um, one of the lessons that I try to teach my kids is that if you are obedient to, the, to, to mommy and daddy, if you listen to mommy and daddy, then you'll be in a happy place. You can enjoy the toys unhindered. You can enjoy the sweet snacks. You can enjoy being with family without any fears of punishments. But if you don't obey, if you don't listen, then what is the result of that? And usually discipline comes, the toys are taken away and timeouts are, are bound to happen. Blessedness means to be in a good place, to be in someone's good graces. It means that someone look upon you with favor. And I'm sure you could think of that as well in terms of just your earthly relationships. Um, you understand that if you were doing well at work and then your boss say something nice about your work, you understand like, okay, I'm in their good grace. But in the sense in the Old Testament is always a reference between God's people and the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, God has said, if you obey my words, you will be blessed. You'll be, uh, you'll be provided for. You'll be distinct from the rest of the nations. But if you choose to disobey me, then there's going to be punishment and curses. This is a state of blessed and you know, to gain favor from the Lord. You'll notice here as well, it says that how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. This word transgression is, is this idea of, of um, forgiveness. I'm not, sorry, not forgiveness. It's, it's this idea of like behaving like a criminal. Um, in fact, the word transgression conveys the idea of, of trespassing. We know in the English term, you know, the phrases like do not trespass. Uh, it's the same idea, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the same idea here. It's, if you think of those signs that said do not uh, trespass, it's usually because it's a private property or I remember a while ago, there was like the Area 51 thing where people wanted to rate that. There's like a do not trespass or you'll get shot because you're going onto government property. And the idea is wherever, if you cross this line, if you go beyond this point, you are doing something that is forbidden. And when used in scripture, it refers to God's line between right and wrong, between holiness and sin. And you cannot cross this line you want to be holy, but if you cross this, this one particular line, then that is sin. You're not allowed to set foot over it. This is what transgression is. This is, you know, if you actually, actually, if you look at verse one, you'll see there's transgressions, there's sin, and there's iniquity. These are all similar words, but there are different nuances in each one. That's what transgression means. It's this, it's this line that you know between what's right and wrong, and you deliberately choose to cross it. This is not an accidental sin. This is a will, willful disobedience to the Lord. This is something that person is aware of. They know like, okay, this is the line and I don't care. I'm going to sin anyways. That's what a transgression is. This is knowing what sin is and deliberately choosing sin over holiness. Now, the difference between sin and transgression is that sin means to fail to fulfill God's perfect standards. It's missing the mark. While transgression is a deliberate act of breaking God's law, sin is failure to live up to God's holy standard. I remember years ago, I mean, I, I date myself, but there was a game back then called Angry Birds. I don't know if people still play that game anymore, but you, but you remember that game. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I still play that game. It's like, cool, I'm not that old. Uh, but in that game, you're, you, you control this little bird, this little angry, sinful bird, and you're supposed to you know, aim at a certain angle, and then you pull back like an arrow, and you let it go, and it flies and attacks these little green, chubby pigs. And in, if you miss, it's often because you didn't pull back far enough or your angle's off. And um, yeah, you, you miss and usually they'll say like, okay, you miss or game over. And next time, if you, if you still play that game, if you see that word game over, you could translate that as sinner. 
because that's what you are. You fail to hit the mark. That's what this word sin is. It's this failing to hit the mark of holiness, of God's standard. In the spiritual context, it's, it would be think things like, okay, when God tells us to, uh, to use our words to build up and edify one another, and we fail to do that, instead we, we slander or we gossip, or if God tells us to be pure morally and we fall into lust, that is failing to live up to God's expectation for you in this life. You fail to hit God's mark of holiness. And you'll notice this, that the, whose sin is covered. Um, this word cover is exactly what it means. It means to conceal, it's to hide. It means to cover all the imperfections. That is what covering of sin means. It means it's, it's, you see something that is broken and you, and you put something over it so that uh, people can no longer see the blemishes anymore. And this is a picture of what happens when we are forgiven. When our sin is covered by God, it's, it co it's over our blemishes and our cracks because now we know that when we stand before the Lord, Christ clothes us with his righteousness. No longer are any imperfections from sin, but we are now covered by the perfect righteousness of our Savior. Now, is this you? Are your sins covered because you have placed your faith in Jesus and he has forgiven you of your sins? Or are you still holding on to your sin? The reason why David feels such a great amount of happiness and blessedness for the forgiveness of sin because understand that his sin was great. Being forgiven is a means that the, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mean, it means that the record that you have is, is removed, is no longer there anymore. That joy and happiness that David felt can be said of you today if you're still holding on to your sin. However, one does not repent. There is a great sadness, great trouble, and great pain. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. God has taken away his sin, and it says here that God does not impute iniquity. This word impute is just, it basically means to credit someone. It's an accounting term. Um, so what does it mean um, to impute iniquity and, or no longer impute iniquity? Um, it just basically just means that you're no longer charged for that, that action. This word iniquity here is, is actually, again, another word for sin, just like sin and transgression, just another nuanced difference. Um, and that is that iniquity is a corrosion of God's standard. It's, it's like a decay. This is a corruption of God's word. And this is what leads to people uh, to feel guilty. In fact, some of your translations might have that word guilt. Guilt is something that you've done wrong. You know that you've done wrong. And it's a, because it's a corruption of God's standard. It's a corruption of God's way, which makes you, des you, makes you rightfully deserving of God's punishment. Putting this all together, it means that when a person is forgiven, they are blessed because God no longer attributes to them the corruption that they have done to the Lord. They no longer have to suffer those consequences anymore. So what does God, so what God does when he forgives us is that he doesn't count the sin against us anymore. Being forgiven is a mean, it just means again, everything is removed. They're no longer there anymore. God will no longer hold your former sins against you, but the moment you ask for forgiveness, the moment where your heart um, acknowledges and confesses that yes, my way was wrong and your way was right, the way in the moment you, you ask the Lord for forgiveness, he no longer holds it against you. You'll notice, and it says here at the end of verse two, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
this word deceit here just basically means is used in, in context of deception or plotting or lying. In other words, this person in their, in their words, um, it, it, it's, this, it's this idea that they, um, they no longer feel self-deceived anymore. When it says that their spirit, there's no more deceit, they're no longer lying to themselves. It's, it's keeping, and usually when people sin, they, they try to rationalize it. In order to keep sin going, they need to lie to themselves. They need to make excuses for their sin. You have to do a whole bunch of mental gymnastics and compromises in your own mind and soul if you want to continue to live in sin. There's no way around it. And when you think about your own sin, are you making excuses to continue in sin? And if so, the only way for you to keep on sinning is if you keep lying to yourself. You keep deceiving yourself. This is what David means here when he says, a blessed person no longer have the spirit that lies to them. You know, an attribute of God that we either forget or take advantage of is, is his grace and his forgiveness. Our God is a forgiving God. And depending where you are on the scale, you either forget his God's ability to forgive you. So you feel guilty or you attempt to sin uh, or, you, or you, attempt to, you attempt to deal with sin in the form of penance. You become self-loathing and even attempt to fix your sin by things that you can do. But that doesn't fix anything because in your own heart, you're still wrong. You've still committed that sin. And this is how God sometimes gets a believer to repent. The Holy Spirit pricks at the spirit of man to get them to repent. On the other side, there are some people that actually presume on God's grace. They, they know that, oh, God is able to forgive us. He's gracious. So therefore, why can't I just continue living in sin? This is like the Romans 6, uh, verse 1 and 2, the, um, the people that abuse the grace of God. They know what God's word has to say, and they just presume that, well, God will just forgive me. He's, he's abundant in his grace. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, may it never be. You, just because you have a, a tremendous medicine, this isn't a call for you to continue sinning. Rather, you will see that grace as, as something that, that, that makes you love the Lord more, and that's what causes your heart to change. Some of these people, they have a wrong and twisted view of God. In reality, they're making themselves an idol. In fact, the God that they worship is not the true God. If they think that, okay, I can just sin and get away with it, they're worshiping an idol. The Bible and the God of the Bible speaks that God is forgiving, but that doesn't mean that he permits you to continue on sinning. People presume on God's grace, do so because they think since God is going to forgive them anyway, they're not, then what's the point? They could just keep falling back into sin. They think that means that God is going to give them a free pass all the time when it comes to sin not realizing that they're actually slowly drifting away from the faith and are corroding their own soul. So how do you view sin, iniquity, or transgressions? Do you have a wrong view of God's forgiving power and grace because you think your sin is greater than his ability to forgive you? Or do you think you have this twisted view of God's grace and you believe that you have a ticket to pursue all your sinful endeavors? Both categories, whichever you are, requires repentance. Forgiveness gives you a clear conscience that sobers you up to get to be able to be back in that blessed relationship with God, to be able to be close with him again, to be able to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. If you're taking notes and we're going to talk about these two points, David here is going to speak of his own personal experiences and then he's going to give some practical advice. So our first point this evening is that David speaks of his own personal experiences when he's dealing with sin, his own personal experiences when dealing with sin. Look at verse three. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. 
through my groaning, through my groaning all the day long. David is speaking of the weight of his own unrepentant heart. He's speaking from personal experience. What happens when he fails to go to God regarding his own failings? This, this, you notice it here, wasted away. This is the idea of being completely drained. It takes a lot of work to cover your own sin. David feels exhausted when it comes to covering up his own sin. Some of you, when you're in college, have pulled an all-nighter, and usually you just keep studying. You study throughout the night and just to prepare for this exam, and then you take the exam the next day. And then when you're done with the exam, you go back to your dorm, you go back home, and you just feel like, you know, all woozy. And just before even hit, your head hit the pillow, you're out. You're, you're, you're just tired. You drag yourself out of class, and you get to bed, and so you rest. You know, that's because you are, you're exhausted. Your, your body has wasted away. Others of you, when you're at work, you understand that there sometimes there are just very busy days. You work really hard, you even miss lunch, and you have to even stay for overtime, so you miss dinner as well. And then what happens after when you leave work? You're starving. You need something to eat because your body has wasted away. Some of you uh, like to do these things called marathons, and uh, you like to inflict self-harm for some reason. And usually when I just watch people in marathons, it's hilarious because they're like crumbling and, and you know, towards the finish line. And what usually happens right afterwards is people just like, you know, dunk water on them to make sure that their body is like cool and, you know, they, have, they get rehydrated. And why is that? Because they're famished, right? Their body has wasted away. That's what this word wasted, wasting away means. It means that you're completely drained of life. It goes further than that for David. His whole body is exhausted, but neither food, sleep, or drink can fix the problem. He couldn't find any rest or relief because his body was wasted away because of sin. David is saying that when he was silent about his sin, he was miserable. Even though God is more than willing to forgive, and in spite of the fact that people know that from his word that he's going to forgive, some people still refuse to confess their sins to the Lord. All too often, people are too reluctant to repent knowing that God is forgiving God, people still refuse to repent. Now, why is that? Why do people still choose not to repent knowing that God's, God's going to forgive them? And some people, the reason why they don't repent is because they convince themselves that what they are doing is not sin. Even though the Bible is clear that this is an area of sin, there's a refusal to acknowledge that what they are doing is sin. It doesn't come from a lack of knowledge or understanding. It's just choosing not to live according to scripture. Others believe that they don't, they don't need to repent because they don't even see that as sin at all. So it's, not, it's different from the first category where there's like maybe like a, they're trying to make some loopholes so that they cannot sin. But this one, the second category of people is like they, don't, they just don't think it's as bad. They don't think it's that bad. It's often the, the beginning of a searing of their conscience. They compromise once and over time because of the seemingly lack of consequence at the moment. They believe that they can just do this act or whatever it may be, and it's not that bad. While the third category, some people refuse to confess because they don't know. It's not because they don't know that's sin, because they do know it's sin, but they just don't want to give it up altogether. They know something is sin. They know this, the verses that come to mind, but they choose to, to, to give themselves over to sin. And again, oftentimes these are the people where the searing of the conscience is already, is already complete. Most people in this category are people have got, are just so far gone from God's word that they, they don't even care anymore. It's, it's, a, it's, not a, it's never a lack of clarity about what the Bible has to say, but it's because it's so clear, they're going to reject it outright. 
And whatever the reason may be, God will not let his children get away with it, at least not for long without any consequences. God is very patient and he desires his children to repent. And sometimes the way the Lord uses, does so is he causes you to feel convicted over your sin and he uses sometimes even physical pain. Notice that David said, through my, through, my, through my groaning all day long, there was apparently some sort of physical pain that David felt that made him, made just, made him feel uneasy when he lived life. In Psalm 51, this is kind of like the parallel Psalm. It describes that David's bones withering away because of his unconfessed sin. This word groaning is, is actually just screaming, is used to describe a lion screaming loudly. So there's a contrast here that although he was silent, his bones were screaming loudly, saying that this is wrong, you need to repent, turn back, stop this. Sin hurts. Don't waste your life by, experience, by, by experiencing your life wasting away. Don't waste your life by experiencing your life being wasted away because of sin. Repent from sin today and find life again. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And as a result, the Lord disciplined his children for sinning because they're harboring and covering and, and, and storing up sin in their life. And David says that God's heavy hand was on him. This is anthropomorphism and is often just referred to his power here. The hand of God protects his children by, per, by potentially inflicting pain onto his children so that they do not get to the point where their sin consumes them. This is Hebrews chapter 12, this is, the, this, this is a familiar passage in terms of the discipline, this mere hand of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 to 11 reads, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he deceives, who, who he receives. It is, it is for discipline that you endure God, uh, that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have but earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect of them, shall we not, not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirit and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best for them, but he disciplined us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is what God does to his children. It's not penalty for sin, but it's, it's, it's correcting. It's, for, it's designed for us to turn away from our foolishness. If you belong to the Lord, you're God's children, and when you fall into sin or you give into sin, God will afflict you. Why? Why would God do that? It's because God loves you. God loves me, so he makes my life miserable? Yes, because sin is not good for you. Sin does not honor the Lord. Sin does not give him glory. It is not to our advantage. He keeps, uh, he keeps giving us opportunity to repent. He makes life hard so you cannot go on about enjoying sin. Notice that David writes, my vitality was drained as with the fever heat of summer. 
the hand of God disciplined David to the point where he felt like he was dying. David felt like kept, kept on running from the Lord and he was drained. It seemed like, it seemed to indicate that his spirit was crushed. David felt spiritually drained all the time. He was, in, we use modern words, he was depressed and it affected him physically as well. God was not allowing David to live a full and fulfilling life because of the sin that went unconfessed. And I think that's gonna be some for some of you. You may wonder why life is so meaningless. It's because you're holding on to sin. Why aren't the things that I'm enjoying, why don't they have the same type of pleasure anymore? It's because God doesn't want you to enjoy it anymore. Even though some things that seem like a normal thing, like, oh, in my academics, you somehow make it into idol. The Lord makes academics difficult for you, makes it hard for you to study. If you idolize your job, he's going to make the job difficult for you so that you don't place your hope and happiness in your job. And that's all part of God's disciplining act so you can fix your heart and mind back to the Lord. David is telling us that he has experience in this field. He knows what it's like to not repent. It is often the case that the most loving thing God can do for us in this life is to, is to sanctify us through the means of afflicting our own conscience. The conscience, if informed correctly, will find that there are areas in our life that contradict scripture and is a call for repentance. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge, I acknowledge my sin to you in my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice how the three, the, the, all three words, sin, iniquity, and transgression, and transgression shows up here again. David's condition would not have gone any better if he continued to let sin reside in his own conscience. He testifies that he came to realize that his sin was keeping him depressed. This is what led him to confess the sin to the Lord. He said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David said he confessed or acknowledged that his sin is to God. Of course, God knew all of David's sin, even all our sin as well. But before there was any forgiveness, there, was, there had to be some sort of agreement that the Lord is right, that God is right, God's standard is right, and that my way is wrong. David stopped hiding his sin. He denied that he didn't even, he, he doesn't even deny the fact that he deserved the punishment. He acknowledged all that happened to him. He knows that he deserved every single ounce of pain and suffering. He took ownership of the, all that he'd done wrong. And God forgave him and he felt, he didn't feel a guilt anymore. God lifted the hands of discipline in his life and in the next. There's, there, there's nothing more freeing in this life than to be forgiven by the Lord for our sins. There's nothing more freeing in this life than to be forgiven by our God. Verse six, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters, they will not reach him. This is a lesson for all of us. David, David's immediate thoughts here, and he's trying to get people to, as they're listening, to confess their sins to the Lord. When it's interesting, they said, when there's still a chance for God to be found. David wants to tell others of his experience to spare them from the, from the pain of unconfessed sin. It says that he let all of God's people learn this lesson and pray while God can still be found. 
usually what we need is that when we fall into sin, we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness quickly. That's his idea here, that you want to go and repent as soon as possible. The moment you realize that you fell short of God's standard, the moment you transgress God's law, confess it quickly. Notice here this word godly. This is the, actually can be translated as devout. The term here is in the Hebrew, the word is very similar to the word of loving kindness that's used throughout the Old Testament. Those are godly. Those are devoted to God. They, he's saying that you have a covenant relationship with God. And, and, and remembering that covenant relationship is what will draw you to confess your sins to the Lord. In order to maintain a closer relationship with God, you must confess to him. God's gracious dealings with them will keep them and prevent them from disaster in his life. Now, if you read this, there's a question, like, when can God not be found? I mean, isn't God omnipresent? Is there really a time where God cannot be found? Is there really a place where God is not there? And in this verse here, isn't so much about regarding location, but rather the window of opportunity to repent. No one is certain that there will be another opportunity to believe. You know, the last several weeks, there's all these violence towards uh, Asians or different shootings of different people and all these murders going on. And not one of them woke up in the morning thinking, I'm going to enter into eternity today. None of them woke up thinking that this is their last day. If there are those that are listening today and those that are listening right now, whether it's here or online, they actually assume that. They presume that they fall asleep this evening, that there's going to be a next day for them, instead of thinking that and every moment, any moment that we have can actually be the last one before we meet our maker. I have in the past, when I was doing evangelism, I've talked to these people that were I said, yeah, I'm, I understand this whole Christianity thing. I did it when I was a kid. I was baptized as a kid. And oh, this Christianity thing, I'll, I'll get back to when I'm older. I'll, when, I'll get, when, I, when I'm older, then I'll return to God. And there's this, again, this assumption, this foolishness, and this presumption that, that, they can, that there is a tomorrow. And I've pleaded with these people, and I'm pleading with you now. Some of you have this assumption that I'm going to just confess my sin tomorrow. You could be here at church. You could be in the live stream. You may be thinking to yourself, well, this is just something that I, I just hold on to for just a little while longer, not realizing that your time could be up at any time. So today is the day of salvation. Today, repent of your sin. You'll notice this line, when God may be found, again, it means that the moment of opportunity can, can pass you by. If the Spirit is convicting you today, don't turn away from it. I was listening to this Q&A between Pastor John MacArthur and Abner. It was like a TMU chapel thing. And MacArthur asked Abner, hey, you know, in recent, of all those recent things about Ravi Zacharias, how would you respond to it? It was kind of weird because people will ask you know, them questions and MacArthur started asking Abner questions. And, and Abner had a really interesting response. He said, you know, let's look at it from a different angle. Imagine that this person was alive today someone that, that lived like Ravi Zacharias and you confronted them on their sin. And then you know, looking at the evidence of Ravi Zacharias' life, it just doesn't seem like he had any remorse or any repentance from it. But if you see that, what is your conclusion? If you're shepherding someone that's alive, that lives this way, would you say that he's a Christian? I sometimes wonder if that's why he had cancer, Ravi Zacharias. This is the way the Lord was just afflicting him to show him, hey, your lifestyle it's a sin, and there no one knew about it until the very end of his life or after his death. 
And I wonder if that's what the Lord was trying to do to afflict him so that he can turn from his, from his secret lifestyle. And I don't know, I, I hope that there was that last moment where he took, uh, that he repented, that he confessed to the Lord. But for some of us, we may not have that opportunity because we may not know when, that, when our life comes to an end. Notice, David writes, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. David means that there is a time when the unrepentant sin can hit you suddenly. But those who pray when they are convicted, they can avoid such devastation because of the discipline of sin. Sin increases and multiplies and it becomes unmanageable like a flood. If you don't want to be overwhelmed by the flood of the consequences of your own sin, then repent quickly. Verse 7, David says that you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with a song of deliverance. David then says that God is his hiding place. David stops caring about whatever happens when he repents. Because there's a sense in which when you repent, sometimes the reason why people don't repent is because they fear the earthly consequences of their sin. You know, some people like, okay, I'm going to lose my job if I repent, or I'm going to lose some relationship if I repent. And David is saying, it doesn't matter anymore. I would rather be hiding under the Lord than to keep my sin openly and be away from the Lord. Some people think that if they, if they keep the sin long enough, they can have God as well. But David understands like whatever consequences may be, whatever happens, it doesn't matter anymore because he doesn't care about those things. He wants to be close with God again. He wants to have that blessed fellowship with him. He has, and David asked God to preserve him from trouble. This is a unique divine protection from any calamity that life would press on him. The result for, of asking forgiveness is that he will find joy again. This word songs here is just basically the shout and this is jubilation of great victory. Um, here, the shout is, a, is qualified by deliverance. So he's basically telling people to sing of the, of the joy that he has in forgiveness, that he's no longer feeling the weight of his own sin anymore. Repentance is pleasing to the Lord. And this isn't to say that you should go and sin so that you can honor the Lord by repenting later. No, it's David saying that just don't fall into sin altogether so that you can enjoy the blessed fellowship with the Lord. David first explains his own personal experience, his own personal experience with sin. And now he's going to um, speak about just practical advice on how to repent. This is our second point. David gives some practical advice on how to repent. Repentance is always better than living in sin. Look at verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Uh, he, he's, this verse is, introduces a resolve from David to instruct his people of God's word. This is a part of the work of the Holy Spirit through David. They fall in sin to go and tell people to, to, to guard themselves on where they need to go. There are no perfect messenger, but the message from God, God's word is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect is what we learned last week um, from Psalm 19. We teach God's law and in instructing the people where they should go and how they should live. He knows that I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He this is like a weird way, like breaking the fourth wall. He's like addressing the reader. He's talking specifically. He's talking directly. He's saying that he knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to fall into sin. He's counseling his listeners to, to, to live differently, 
to not go the path that he went through. He wants us to fix our eyes on the Lord so that we don't fall into sin again. Or if you do fall into sin, that you will repent. Now, can, they, can this be said about you? Either when, you, when you're reading this, do you understand that you and I are going to have to repent of sin because you know, we live, we're fallen beings, we're fallen creatures, but how fast we are, the quicker we are to repent of our sin, the quicker we can have this blessed fellowship with the Lord again. Verse nine, uh, do not be as a horse or as a mule, which have no understanding, whose trapping include a bit and, and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will come, uh, otherwise they will not come near you. And this is, it's, this is basically, don't be dumb like an animal. Stop rebelling. Uh, this is a reference to the, the un, just animals that are just not thinking clearly. They just kind of do whatever they want on instinct or some of these animals are just very prideful or stubborn. David uses these animals to help people think about just like kind of like an illustration to not be like a horse or a mule. These animals have to be controlled. Some of these wild animals in particular have to be controlled. And the only way they could be controlled is through a bit and a, a bridle to force them to go along with them, to, to force them into submission. I don't know if you guys, if you guys ever owned a horse before, um, but you do realize that horses don't just allow you to just jump on top of them. Especially just a horse that's kind of like a wild horse. You can't just go up to a horse and say, oh, hey, horse, you know, just jump on top of them, expect the horse to be cool with you. You know, it's not like the movies. Um, in fact, if you try jumping on a horse, they'll just, just you know, they'll try to throw you off, like get off my back. Yeah, this is, isn't that how it's like when we fall into sin and we confront people on sin or we're confronted on sin. Our natural response is to tell people to get off our back. I'm not saying that when you are counseling others, when you, when you're, you know, when you see sin, you're counseling other people, you're confronting them that you should stronghold the person like by jumping on their back and like put a bit in their mouth. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you do need to call them to repentance and you're not the Holy Spirit police, but you just need to share with them God's word the way David is trying to do. He's trying to share with you God's word so that the Holy Spirit can convict you and change your life. God is the only one that can change. Your job is like J David's job right here is to teach God's word, teach them God's way. David here is saying that he would rather have people choose what is right than to re and reject what is wrong than to have uh, a disciplining hand to force them to, uh, to submit. David exhorted the people to not be like these animals that refuse to go where the rider leads and needs to be pulled by bits or bridle, but, but for them to turn to God willingly. Don't be stubborn like this mule here. This is a picture of God using extreme means to get the attention to put the animals under control. Stop rebelling. Get a hold of your own heart and desires because it says it's better to obey God than to reject him. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. David offers a truism here. There's a contrast between those that are wicked and those that, are, that trust in God. There's a reality that ungodly people have a false sense of happiness. This word sorrow just means pain or misery, sadness, something to that extent. Those people, uh, the people that don't repent are generally very miserable people. And they're usually the most dissatisfied people that you'll ever meet. If you just look at life, look at those that are most miserable, they're probably holding on to some sin. This word many here in the Hebrew, it means exactly that. It just means many. There are many types of suffering, many types of heartache, many types of pain that comes along with living in sin. Sin makes your life 
miserable. If you don't believe that, then it must mean that you've reached a point where you walk, where you've become callous, that you don't care about sin anymore, which means that eventually you're, uh, you're going to be miserable. Or it could be the other end where the sin hasn't reached its fullest effect yet, so you haven't felt that misery yet. But regardless, pain is going to come for you when you live in sin. But for those who trust in God's love and kindness, there will be joy. David does not specify what they are or where or when they come, but there will be a, a, some sort of calamity or catastrophe that comes in your life if you live in sin. Again, contrasting that with the believer, the believer has great prospect. God's loyal love will surround them. If you're God's ch- children, if you're a true child of God, you will go back to, uh, you would want to restore that relationship with him. You want to be close with God. There may be many difficulties to overcome, but God's faithful covenant love will always be there. One can confess sin and immediately find relief and joy in divine forgiveness through the loyal covenant love of our God. One result of forgiveness from the Lord is being close with him, to commune with him, to have your prayers heard and answered, to be able to understand his word more, to be able to experience the grace of God to to be able to experience loving kindness and and being close with God should be the drive for us to turn and flee from sin. We want our relationship with God to be good and to experience the blessing and happiness of God. And notice verse 11, be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright at heart. This last verse speaks to the joys of forgiveness, upright in heart, repent with a clear conscience not just going through the motions, but truly turn from him, from your inner being, from, your, from the deepest of your own heart. Admit all your wrongs, even if you're potentially suffering the temporal consequences of this life, because you get to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. Repent of your sins early rather than later. As soon as you sin, repent. You know, sometimes when you know, speaking as a married person, there's, you know, we understand that there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, and then there's bound to be time where we have these things called heated fellowship, which is basically another way of saying an argument between two Christians. You're bound to have those moments. But yet, how you know a good marriage, a marriage is good, it's not that they're perfect, that they have no problems. But the fact, but it's actually shown when there is a problem, when there is conflict, when there's sin, and then there's a quickness to forgive and a quickness to reconcile your relationship. A good friendship between a brother or sister in faith is not... It's not, it's not a friendship without any problems, but rather people that choose to be peacemakers as fast as possible. You love your friends so much that you hate the tension, you hate uh, the problem you guys have, so you ask for forgiveness, you restore that relationship, and you move past it. In the same way, in a healthy relationship with God, we understand it's not that God sins against us, but we always sin against him. And we as fallen people, if we want to have that close relationship with the Lord, we need to repent quickly, turn from our sin, acknowledge that as sin, so that we can walk closely with the Lord again. David went for months before repenting, and it hurt him. It hurt his physical body, it hurt his conscience, his spirits, it hurt his relationship with the Lord. And as he realizes that, okay, when he turned, when he was confronted with sin, when Nathan, the prophet, confronted him, he realizes this is what I need. I need to turn from my sin. I can no longer hide it anymore. My body wasted away because I was covering my sin. But when I repented, the Lord covered my own, all of my sin. If you want to have a healthy relationship with God, 
you must be willing to let go of sin and cling to Christ. How long are you going to go without repenting before the Lord? The psalm is written for those who profess to be followers of Christ. This isn't written to non-Christians. It is written for those that hear and know God's word to take God's word seriously. God's word warn us, warns us of the consequences of sin, and it would be wise if all of us took this warning seriously. That you and I here today learn from David. We look from his personal experience and take his practical advice that if we are faithful and uh, we know that the Lord is faithful, but if, um, and you know, we're the ones that fall short. And when we fall into sin, that we quickly turn from it because, of, because we want to be close with God. May being drawn close to the Lord, have a sweet communion with him, drive us to repent of our sin. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord God, we know that we fall short on a regular basis. We're so thankful for your grace. Lord, we never want to abuse your grace. We never want to get to the point where we take advantage of it. But we know that our hearts are so deceitfully wicked. May you use the Spirit to convict us of sin. Convict us in the areas in our life where it's not pleasing to you. Lord, I also ask for those that their hearts are hardened or, or, or becoming more callous. Lord, may you afflict them. Lord, may you cause them to get to the point where they realize that they have nothing to turn to but you, that they cannot find happiness except having a right relationship with you. And Lord, I do pray for those that are listening who have not given their life to you, that they are still running from you, that they're living in sin and they're just here to just do the rituals of Christianity. May you afflict them as well, draw them to you, whatever it takes. Make them see the, the harmfulness of sin in this life because we know that the consequences in eternity is far worse than the pain here. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your son dying on the cross for our sins so that we have this right relationship with you so that not only our sins cover, but it's washed away. There's no more records of that anymore. We're so thankful for the atoning work of your son who died and rose again so that we may have new life as well. Be with us this weekend and this day as well. Um, may we guard our own hearts and minds from sin. May we flee from temptation or um, keep us uh, from sin, Lord. And if, there are, and if there are some that fall, uh, convict us so that we can repent. Thank you for this time that we have together. In our son's precious name, amen. All right, thank you for listening. We have some quick announcements. I have three. Uh, one of them is our Christmas, no, not Christmas, Easter, Good Friday. I'm like getting my, 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 my Christmas days or Christian days, holidays mixed up. But next Friday is Good Friday. Um, we're not gonna be here in person. Um, we're gonna have a, a, a Good Friday service. Um, but I think we are, I think Cantonese people meet. I'm not sure if they're inviting anyone, but maybe it's just the Cantonese people. But we're not gonna be here this, Friday, this, this next Friday because of that. Um, I think they're gonna be, there's gonna be a link that's sent out for that. So, you know, if you have friends that are willing, you can send them that link as well. And, and the gospel is gonna be preached. Um, so there's that next Friday. Two Fridays from now, we're going to have this little joint session with Quest. Quest is the, the our uh, fellowship Bible churches, college and career ministry. So they're um, they're kind of like our sister church or brother church, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they want to do something just like kind of cross fellowship with different churches. So we're like, okay, we'll do something. It's like a kind of a game night. Uh, there's uh, I think the admin guys will give a little bit more details on what that evening will look like. 
And um, three weeks from now, so when we return, um, we're gonna actually open it up for 35 people to come. Tonight, there's about 20 of you here. And some of you, if you're interested and you're able to, please come back, come and join us on Friday nights. I'd love to have the fellowship time with you and be able to see you. Um, even if it was for a short time, it's always great to be able to see um, God's people together and worshiping together. Uh, so look forward to that. There should be the sign up in a few weeks. Uh, but yeah, 35, that's, I think, I think that's the limits of what we can do in the, uh, in the building. And um, I'm sure as time progresses, that number will increase as well. So just be patient, but um, if you're able, please return. Um, so, you know, we're called to be with each other. And I know that there are exceptions because of we're in a weird time, but if you're able, please return. Um, with that said, that's it. Any no more announcements? Okay, well, have a great evening and uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>